Does quarantine stink? It doesn't have to. Introducing Lidates, the new luxury candle line by the Lit Society podcast. Each aromatic experience is inspired by literature, from The Great Gatsby to Sula by Toni Morrison. Each candle instantly transports you into the setting that inspired its creation. Discover Lidates today by visiting L-O-V-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S. That's lovelidates.com. Again, lovelidates, L-O-V-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S.com. Or visit lovelidates on Instagram and Facebook. Lidates, they're not your average fragrances. A beautiful woman from the south side of Chicago sits alone in her garden, ready to evaluate the sum of her life thus far. We follow her from the upstairs apartment she shares with her parents and brother as a child to the moment her mom stood as her champion in the second grade. We follow her to high school, where a counselor told her she wasn't good enough before even knowing her. It is in each moment we learn more about this woman, who she is, what drives her. Eventually, we follow her through the moment that would shape her life forever when she met one man, and that man caused her to question her very purpose. That woman's name is Michelle Obama. The book is Becoming, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Alexis, and you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Alexis, what? Call me side. Call me side. Call me side. <laughs> well, you know, I, I like staying up all night and, and doing work at the last minute, and inspires me to not do anything. So yeah, I'm doing great. How about you? Quarantine was cute. But now it's starting to get warm outside and I'm nervous. (laughs) You feel like you're going to miss out on the summer? I mean, I don't even want to say it. Let's not. Let's move on. Well, (laughs) each week, readers, we choose a theme to discuss based on the book we're reading. And the theme this week is nine ways to boost your self-confidence for now and forever. And um, that's a good theme. Thank you. The thing, when I was reading this book, that kept popping into my mind how uh, Michelle definitely had that confidence from early age. But that was given to her by her environment. She was surrounded by family that loved her and believed in her. Not all of us have that. Some of us mm-hmm. are um, come from backgrounds where uh, maybe our parents never were were supported as children and they don't know how to support us or maybe we've had some failures in our life that has caused us to um have deal with lower self-esteem um so these nine ways are for adults adults who have had champions and those who have not um i went to ink.com uh, which is a website I, I uh, like to browse occasionally for sometimes business information. But they had an article here from Lolly Daskal, and she's the founder of Lead From Within, a successful leadership firm that offers custom made programs in leadership and organizational development. So she's like a, a leadership coach. 
And she gives here uh, more than nine ways to boost your self-confidence. So I'm not actually going to follow her list. I'm just choosing from things she brought out, things that I know have helped me personally. The thing with low self-esteem is that um, it's an unfortunate self-fulfilling prophecy because you feel bad about yourself. You feel like you won't succeed at something. And so you don't. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so and then you feel reaffirmed, like told you me. Told yep. you me you wasn't good enough. Look, that's you ain't. your words have power kind of thing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. thoughts. Our thoughts, yeah. have your power. thoughts have power. So I'm going to start with uh, my number one, which is her number four, which is get clear on your values. And she brings out that we need to determine our values and examine our life to see um, where we're living in a, in a line. Make sure that what we're doing in life is in alignment with what we believe. So we we do have to have beliefs. And if this isn't faith based for you, you you we have to know uh, where our lines are so that we know what borders um, to create when it comes barriers to create when it comes to our relationships. And so once we examine our life to see um, how what we're doing aligns with our beliefs, make necessary changes. The more we know what we stand for, the more confident we will be. So, you know, stand for something or fall for nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Number two, her number six, stand at the edge of your comfort zone. There's a a, like a Lululemon ad that's like, do something scary every day. Well, that that can be actually a great way to boost your self-esteem. Stretch yourself past the edge of your comfort zone. And that doesn't mean taking unnecessary risks, but get comfortable trying something new. Meet different people, run an extra mile, approach a situation in an unconventional way. Um, Confidence can begin at the edge of your comfort zone. Um, Maybe you've had your eye on a certain career path, but you didn't think you were either good enough or you didn't think the pay was enough, even though it's something that you're passionate about. Uh, Maybe now is the time to give that a try. Have you ever um, stood at the edge of your comfort zone and saw a big payoff? Hmm. Yep. I have. And in fact, I have that, not that exact saying, but um, a saying similar to that in the wall in my old office, you know, back when we used to go into workplaces and have mm-hmm. bulletin boards. Oh, you got a nice office, too, with a view of downs. <laughs> I ain't trying to tell your business, but, you know, not too shabby. Sometimes I hang out in your office. You didn't even know I was there. <laughs> Anyway, it was it was really great. I think when I finished, well, I know when I finished um, college, I needed to start over. Um, I had already been working in a job in a um, with insurance industry for like several years. But in order to start over because I wanted to work in law firms, I had to take like a huge pay cut. So for me, that was stepping outside of my comfort zone because I was raising a child at the time. to oh, yeah, achieve sure. something you that I wanted. You had someone else to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, it paid off in the end. Number three. <laughs> Her number seven, help someone. I could get better at this. Use your talent, she says, skills and abilities to help others. Give someone direct assistance, share helpful resources, or teach someone something they want to learn. I love that. Don't be teaching me that I don't care about. Teach people (laughs) something they want to learn. Offer something you do well as a gift to someone else. We all have talents that we have to work hard at, but you know there's probably a natural edge there. Share those gifts with others. 
Um, Hmm. I love learning off of, you know, reaching out to people like, you know, you do this really well. And I wanted to know, um, you know, how because I want to improve my abilities in this area, you know, Mm -hmm. give me the cheat codes. And then they'd be like, well, you got to eat right and exercise. And I'd be like, ah, we ain't really. No, we're not doing that. (laughs) Number four, heal your past. Unresolved issues and drama can keep you trapped in low self-esteem. Seek the support of a trained. I'm just going back up here. Yes. Say it for the people in the back. the support of a trained counselor to help you heal the past so you can move on to the future in a confident and self-assured way. Hey, your mama might love you, but she ain't necessarily trained. Your best friend is going to tell you what you want to hear because they love you, too. But they may not be trained. There are options if you have insurance, if you don't have insurance, if you've thought about therapy or um, some other way to talk to a third party, but have never done it. This is a great opportunity to try because we're all stuck inside. And you know what? No one will ever know. (laughs) Don't feel ashamed. So I'm going to say I got friends that just be telling me um, what it is, what it is. But I still (laughs) see the need to see a therapist because you got that neutral party to offer um, um, suggestions for growth and, um, you know. Of course. And and there are things with our past that our friends have not had to go through. So they don't necessarily know how to approach it to help you unpack it. They'll do their best. But a trained counselor has been, in fact, trained um, to help people in these situations. And that can be invaluable. Uh, Number five, stop worrying about what others think. Oh, I love this. Oh, repeat, repeat for the people in the back. Oh, and for the people nearby. (laughs) For the people on this very Zoom call. Listen, you might have a list of 20 things and you got two done and you like, oh, my goodness, I'm such a failure. Why do you think that? Why do you think other people? That's a little bit of narcissism in there. Why do you think people care so much about your failures when they failing on their own? We all got our own stuff. Well, uh, what this article, what this author says is when you worry about what others will think of you, you never feel free to be completely yourself. Make a firm decision, decision to stop worrying about what other people think. Begin making choices based on what you want, not what you think others want from you. Um, a lot of times on social media, we can get ca- so caught up in what our friends say, what they what strangers we don't even know or like think maybe it's time to disconnect a little bit from social media. That's fine. But yeah, stop worrying about what others think. Number six, read something inspirational. A great way to gain more (laughs) self-esteem is to read something (laughs) that lifts you up and makes you feel positive about yourself. Uh, Now I'm going to go off of a few of my own. The last three points are things that have helped me to develop um, a stronger self-confidence, um, a healthy self-confidence. Uh, the first of that, number seven, is m- by making a list of three things I want to do today, three things I want to do this month, and three things I want to accomplish this year. By mapping out the smaller steps it will take to reach each of these goals and recognizing and like honoring myself when I achieve each small step, not each goal, but each small step. Towards that these- goal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the goals um, I also acknowledge. So um, like my goal is to be completely debt free in a month and I can do that. 
So <laughs> this sounds kind of productive, but listen. <laughs> oh, so by I the way, I have a list. <laughs> Go ahead. Your home designs, what you updated with. I don't know. If that's the money source. It's fire, girl. It's looking <laughs> good. You, girl, okay. you know, I got the time. I got the time. And online shopping is therapy. <laughs> so, you know, I want to be debt free. So maybe I'll pay off. No, not maybe. This is what I'm doing. If I pay off two bills, I'll, I have a list of big ticket items that I want. I really want these things. Ooh, ooh I can't wait to see those. <laughs> and yeah, this slows down my progress. So I'm still on track. So I paid off three bills. And you know what I bought yesterday? A neon light to go in my bedroom. Does that sound crazy? Listen, I wanted this neon light for a very long time. I know where I'm going to put it. It's going to be chic. When you see it on the gram, you're going to be like, oh, yes, yes, I see, I see. And then you know what? I'm going to finish paying off the rest of the bills next month, and I'm buying a turntable. I've been wanting a turntable. You get ready to start I'm making music at home. Nice. Okay. It's special K on the ones and twos. You know, I used to be a DJ. I DJed a party once under the name Special K. It was not good. I People think I remember angry. that many, many moons ago. Were right? you there? I don't think so, but I remember oh, it. Ooh. Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> um, so uh, have you had any experience with this? I know you used to keep a journal. Oh, yeah. So that new planner I bought, the Full Focus Planner, is really great for that. It's taught me how... Um, to kind of chunk things down, celebrate the small um, successes that lead me to my bigger goal at the end of the quarter. And and so I really love it. I've gotten a habit of opening it every day and trying to fill it out um, my things to do for the next day before I sign off of work. So that's been extremely helpful. So I've made some improvements since I um, started using it. I don't you don't remember when I talked about it some time ago, but yeah, I'm still loving it. And mm-hmm, it's sure. made a huge difference um, in my small successes. And I'm trying to to be happy with the small successes. OK, I love it. Um, I think I'm going to steal one of your approaches and make these lists the day and year before uh, the following year. So I usually wake up and do these things and it's a lot of pressure. But Mm -hmm. if I did it at the end of the previous day, I think I'd approach the next day with more gusto. So thank you. That's what I'm going to do. Step eight, surround yourself with people who think well of you and those whom you respect. You may have friends that love you, but you don't love the choices they make. Or you may have people around you who seem to make great choices, but they don't think that much of you. These may be, this may be ain't your tribe. Nope. (laughs) Nope. You need a circle that kind of cares about you and, you know, Mm -hmm. your goals and your um, values are aligned. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And lastly, number nine, this is also mine exercise and don't compare your exercise to fitness grammars we're not talking about a six-pack or maybe we are but (laughs) But your version of a six-pack this is the thing it's a personal thing the point is exercise is something we do for our body it's something we do just for us so you can't be like exercising for him you know or for her (laughs) you know you got to exercise do it for it. you because mm-hmm. that's what you yeah. want. Yeah. 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 So those are nine ways to boost self-esteem today for now and forever. Anything else you want to add? 
No, those are pretty good. I, I like them. Um, I might even incorporate one or two of those so I can have oh, cool. stronger esteem and things. <laughs> Something like Love that. Love it. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a break. <laughs> Um, can you tell us a little bit about now? What's this author's name? Michelle hmm. Obama. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Who so is no. this? So <laughs> technically, I'm not going to tell you anything about her because we're going to handle that in a deep dive. But yeah, what I will memoir. tell you is about um, her book, the book itself. So um, Becoming was published in 2018, and it was released in 24 languages. It sold more copies than any other book published in the U.S. in 2018, Um, breaking records in just 15 days. On the first day of sales, it sold 725,000 copies. The book sold 1.4 million copies in the first week. And by March 2019, this is according to Wiki, um, 10 million copies were sold. Wow. She made a donation um, of 1 million copies to an American nonprofit organization. Her audio book won the Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Album in 2020. And I think she released mm -hmm, and I think she released a Netflix document um, documentary this month. Mm -hmm, She did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the Grammys are a joke. This is the best spoken word album. There are spoken word artists. Uh huh. Yep. Yep. She is not a spoken word artist. If you want to say best audio book, make that a category. I love it. That would make sense, right? Because it's not the same thing. Man, I hate the Grammys. All right. Thank <sighs> you for that. Did you want to give us a synopsis of the book without spoilers, if that's a thing? I'll give it a try. Um, <laughs> Michelle Obama shares with an eager world her story of life growing up on the south side of Chicago, being a career-driven wife and mother, and her years as first lady of the United States. I wish they could see you uh, clutching your breasts with your eyes closed while you say this. As a devoted wife, career-driven mother, Boo. Michelle Obama. <laughs> Hopefully really after did. this book, people will know her name. I think uh, so. so. <laughs> Thanks to us. So what were your first thoughts on our book? So this came out two years ago? Yeah, we're really behind. Listen, and judge away. I don't care. I had no intention of reading this uh-huh, First uh-huh. of all, I picked it up a couple of times and I thought it was a little thick. thick. And then <laughs> I thought it was going to be like all politics. And I, listen, oh, I'm tired. Wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> but boy, was I ignorant, you guys. <laughs> I should have read this two years ago. <laughs> anyway. Uh, what about you? What do you think, Alexis? What were your first thoughts? So I've been wanting to read it for um, since it came out. I was excited about it coming out. Um, so, yeah, I was excited about it. And just recently I was gifted the book. So I was like, yay, oh, it's, time to, it's time to start reading. So, um, yeah, I was glad to be gifted the book. You know, I love a physical book. So, um, yeah, I was ready and eager to read Have it. Have you I seen was the really- guided journal? 
that accompanies it? No, I didn't take a look at that, really. Yeah, there's a guided journal that's also um, selling pretty well that's called Becoming. And it accompanies this book. Um, You don't really need the book for the journal, but yeah. Anyway. All right. So it's about that time. Anything else you want to add before we continue? No. Then let's dive in. It's time for a deep dive into Becoming by Michelle Obama. Alexis, take it away. Part one, I'll show you. Michelle Robinson grew up in the South Shore neighborhood of Chicago in a second floor apartment owned by her great aunt Robbie and her husband Terry. Um, Until she was at least eight months old, however, they lived in a housing project on the south side of Chicago. And that project was built in the 1950s and it was designed as a co-op and meant to ease kind of (laughs) post-world, post-world war to housing shortages for black um, working class families. But later it um, deteriorated into kind of poverty. And so her great aunt, suggested that her parents move to um this the apartment nicer above her yeah, yeah this apartment above her that was um uh, in a nicer na- neighborhood her parents married in their mid 20s and they moved over this in this brick bungalow and this but they've space, been dating since high school right <laughs> yes dating yeah. since high school he took her to prom they moved into this second floor space and she said it was designed like an in-law apartment so it wasn't meant for a bunch of people a family of four but meant mm-hmm. for maybe one or two people but they're four a family mother-in-law you stick up there yeah. and hope to never see again <gasps> oh that's low down now <laughs> that's how they make them not my mother-in-law i love her right but that's right. what some people do yeah mm-hmm. sure 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 um so her four family members, her mother, her father and her older brother, Craig, um, who I think is about two years or more older than her. Um, so the parents sleep in the only bedroom and then her and Craig share a bigger um, bedroom area where she's kind of said it was maybe the living room part. Um, yeah, it was the living room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the hope was, well. Aunt Robbie was a piano teacher and from upstairs, the family could hear the um, piano lessons. There were music lessons, like maybe voice lessons as well. And so um, Michelle was kind of she heard that. So she felt like, yeah, you know, I already know how to play the piano. So I mean, through osmosis, (laughs) go down there. But what she also heard is that her. um her aunt Robbie was an exacting woman. So she had very high requirements for her standards for her students. And um, she, she just wanted them to do well. And there was a certain way things had to be done. Um, so before we get into her, uh, her lessons with aunt Robbie, we learned that Michelle learned how to read early. Um, her mom used to take her to the library and teach her how to read. Um, so she was reading a little bit before she started school. Her father was a city worker and everything that mattered to her was in a five block radius. She had um, uncles and aunts and her grandparents, everything. Her family was very important to her. Um, they were very close and they were just right there. She and I mentioned her Aunt Robbie was a music teacher. She learned that her Aunt Robbie had sued Northwestern University in 1943 because they denied her a room. Um, in the woman's dorm. Instead, they wanted her to stay in a, a rooming house in town for the col- coloreds. And Aunt Robbie's husband, Terry, was a Pullman porter 
on the overnight passenger trains. And so she said he he kind of that was his work, but he kind of held that presence. The um he was always buttoned up, even mowing the lawn. He yeah. would be like fully dressed. Yeah. Yeah. Like a dapper Dan. Yeah. So but it, it may it reminded me of one of the people in the warmth of the other sons, because I think that was the yeah, same George, job he did. Okay. Starling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So music lessons. Like I said, Michelle could hear the lessons from downstairs that Aunt Robbie was giving to everybody. So she started taking lessons when she was about four years old. Her brother Craig was already taking the lessons and she was like, yeah, it's time. I'm pretty confident I got this. I done heard all there is to know about learning piano. I just need to get down there and show my aunt that I am going to be her star student. I'm your new prodigy. Hey, it's me. How many days have I had? You say it don't matter. Come on, let's get to this piano player. Let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> but our Robbie was rigid and demanded excellence, as I mentioned. So one time, um, Michelle went ahead of the book. And she thought Aunt Robbie would just be so proud that she had went ahead in the book and learned these new songs. But instead, Aunt Robbie chewed her out. <laughs> she was There's like, a process. You need to follow the process. And Michelle was like, but why? I'm smart and I found these songs and I learned them. You need to be happy. That's I'm right. I'm accelerated. <laughs> she was like, nope, <laughs> not at all. So Michelle essentially was always coloring outside the line. She just didn't want to stay uniform with her aunt's guidelines, with her systematic approach to things. So Michelle and Aunt Robbie, they fought back and forth. Now, remember, she's four years old. (laughs) She's four years old. And she said um, they were both stubborn and they would get in each other's faces and have these arguments. So as I'm reading this section, it made me think about um, my own daughter who used to get into it with my grandmother. And at one time she was I think she was um, four years old and my grandmother put her out. (laughs) Put the four year old baby out? Out of the house. So I know these four year olds can be strong willed and be cutting up. So she yes, she put the baby out the house. My aunt had to come and get her and take her to her house because she like put her out and shut the door. Yes, that happened. So anyway. So Michelle was something else, clearly. She fighting with her auntie, okay? So um, her parents would hear this stuff from upstairs and they would laugh about it. But, you know, it wasn't like, you stop talking like that to your auntie. That didn't happen. She let, They let uh, Michelle handle that with her auntie herself. Um, she wasn't Because they recognize there's a difference between disrespect and a spark of spirit. So yeah. Michelle just didn't understand why she couldn't be, why she couldn't go ahead, why she had to follow these rules. And she wanted that explained to her. There was no explanation given because she was a child and she was supposed to know her place. And that wasn't good enough for Michelle. Exactly. So she was going to keep challenging the status quo. Yeah. Yeah, she did that. So once a year, Aunt Robbie put on these fancy recitals at um, Roosevelt University, which is in downtown Chicago. But it's right near Alvin Ailey plays uh, dances every year. Oh, they do. Okay, and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra is also played near there. Um, So the whole thought of it playing at this big venue and just really made her nervous. So when it was Michelle's turn to play, she walked up on her stage in her best posture. She sat down at the baby grand. She knew her song um, by heart. She just needed to start playing. 
but the piano was different from the piano that she had practiced on. And so it's like she kind of froze. Um, the piano at Aunt Robbie's house wasn't upright. It was kind of yellow in keys and a, a chipped middle C. But the um, piano there, well, of course, was flawless, well-tuned. And uh, she just wasn't used to flawless. And, and this she, was a lesson in life. Yeah. Go Are you going there? Um. No, go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I love that you're um, detailing this because this was like a lesson in life for her. She had learned to play well on chipped keys. Mm -hmm. So she knew where to, the middle C was because it was it had this like indentation. And when she found the middle C, she could play the whole song brilliantly. She had prepared well. But this baby grand was flawless it was perfect and she didn't know how to play in a flawless world or a so-called flawless war world yeah. seemingly flawless it's just kind of a world opened up for her that everything wasn't the same for everybody I got up from my seat and walked with my very best posture to the front of the room, mounting the stairs and finding my seat at one of the gleaming baby grands. The truth is, I was ready. As much as I found Robbie to be snippy and inflexible, I'd also internalized her devotion to rigor. I knew my song so well, I hardly had to think about it. I just had to start moving my hands. And yet there was a problem. When I discovered in the split second it took to lift my little fingers to the keys, I was sitting at a perfect piano, it turned out, with its surfaces carefully dusted, its internal wires precisely tuned, its 88 keys laid out in a flawless ribbon of black and white. The issue was that I wasn't used to flawless. In fact, I'd never once in my life encountered it. My experience of the piano came entirely from Robbie's squat little music room with its scraggly potted plant and view of our modest backyard. The only instrument I'd ever played was her less than perfect upright and with its honky-tonk patchwork of yellow keys and its conveniently chipped middle C. To me, that's what a piano was. The same way my neighborhood was my neighborhood, my dad was my dad, my life was my life, it was all I knew. Now, suddenly, I was aware of people watching me from their chairs as I stared hard at the high gloss of the piano keys, finding nothing there but sameness. I had no clue where to place my hands. With a tight throat and chugging heart, I looked out to the audience, trying not to telegraph my panic, searching for the safe harbor of my mother's face. Instead, I spotted a figure rising from the front row and slowly levitating in my direction. It was Robbie. We had broad plenty by then, to the point where I viewed her a little bit like an enemy. But here, in my moment of comeuppance, she arrived at my shoulder almost like an angel. Maybe she understood my shock. Maybe she knew that the disparities of the world had just quietly shown themselves to me for the first time, it's possible she needed simply to hurry things up. Either way, without a word, Robbie gently laid one finger on middle C so that I would know where to start. Then, turning back with the smallest smile of encouragement, she left me to play my song. 
Michelle's grandfather, um, they South Side. Yep. Called him South Side. This is actually Robbie's younger they brother. They called him South Side. Who is this? Is this Alexis? <laughs> <laughs> Why? What? 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 No, it's fine. Go ahead. Uh huh. So <laughs> they um, called him South Side. <laughs> And he lived with his children. Yeah, he lived with his children. So another aunt and uncle. And so Michelle would spend these afternoons with him and she would be listening to music to him. So she he gave her the introduction of music into her life. Um, like. Um, what did she say? I'm trying All to these records. Some, so yeah. like Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. That's the name I'm trying to come yeah. up with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was introduced to that and she loved it. She had a fine appreciation for it, for sure. When Michelle started kindergarten in the fall of 19, I want to say 69. She'd known how to read some basic words and she was at a school where her brother was in second grade and her brother is a well-liked kid. Her walk to school was about a two-minute walk, so that's pretty cool. I always wanted to go to a school really close, but anyway, um, the first job as a kindergarten was to, uh, kindergartner was to learn to read these new set of words by sight. So the teacher assigned a list of colors, and the teacher would quiz them one at a time. And so, and she said in public schools during that time, if you had a head start at home, you were rewarded and considered bright and gifted, um, which of course boosted your confidence because everybody thinks you're, you know, smart. They'll invest more time in you because uh-huh. they see you as gifted. And so, and then we're but all- really, you were just supported at home and your parents had enough time or made the time to educate you before you enter the school system. Right. And and so there were advantages to that. So Michelle was driven to keep up with the smartest kids in class. Um, when it came time for her to be quizzed, she stumbled over the word white. And this was hard for her because by the time she was heading back to her seat after the teacher said, okay, sit down, she knew what the word was. And so Michelle was embarrassed and she thought, about that word all night. And so the next day she went into the school and demanded a do-over from the teacher. And the teacher was like, yeah, we don't really have time for that. But she convinced the teacher. Also, this is stupid. (laughs) Yeah. But Michelle- you're like five. (laughs) Exactly. So Michelle was like, "I, um, I want this. It was important to her. And so she got the quiz again. She was retested and she succeeded and she got that little gold star. Who didn't want a gold star? I want a gold star. So I know what she was talking about. Test me again. So, and I would have been at the back of the class like, when is this going to be over so I could go home and eat a sandwich? <laughs> oh, there go Michelle spelling white again. But she I was that little girl. <laughs> but she was proud of herself. She felt accomplished. She left that experience feeling accomplished, you know, and that she stood up for herself. Her mom was certainly an advocate for her in school. One time, Michelle complained about the second grade teacher who couldn't seem to control the classroom. She seemed incompetent. Now, this is a young child. What at, what, what are you like seven at this point when you're in second grade? I don't know. But she was like the teacher wasn't doing a good job teaching us. So 
I don't know, mom. It, I mean, it's a problem. And her mom was like, you know, just do the best you can. But her mom actually went to the school and made sure her daughter was pulled out of that class and put into another class where Michelle was able to. A third to, grade class, right? Yeah. Where she, yeah, I think she was moved ahead. Mm-hmm. This is a good point about how children know when you don't believe in them. And <laughs> So the second grade teacher was unmotivated didn't want to teach the class and wasn't capable enough to get control of the classroom in Michelle's opinion. Yeah. And the show and her mom told her as much, told the teacher as much. Yeah. So I'm going to jump ahead to her, um, her high school years. And she went to Chicago's first magnet school, which is a school with a, a spec specialized, um, curricula. And it was called Whitney M. Young. Um, this school it's was still called Whitney Young. People are proud to go to Whitney Young. Okay, yeah, it is. They talk about that for the rest of their lives. What's, I asked one girl, so what high school are you going to? She said uh, Whitney Young. Oh, I said, girl, I'm from Wisconsin. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know nothing about that, girl. <laughs> nothing for real. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. So <laughs> the school was designed to draw students of color who were high performers. And Michelle was worried that she wasn't good enough because was it, an, you know, we mentioned earlier that you got special treatment if you you kind of got this, um, you had help at home before you were getting that support at home. And so now she would be in the midst of all these um, people who were supposedly like really high performance and could she really measure up? A lot of the kids at the school that she at um, Whitney Young were elite black families from around the city. So this introduced Michelle to like a new world of experiences. And so early on, Michelle had this circle of friends. Um, She would go home from school um, for lunch with five or six friends in tow. So her friends were important to her and um, they built her up early on. One of her close friends in high school was Santita. And we learned that Santita was actually Reverend Jesse Jackson's daughter. And through her friendship with Santita, she learned about life and politics. They were often stuck waiting on a delay related to her father. Maybe his plane was delayed or he was rerouted for some reason. Um, They would think they were getting a ride to the mall, but instead they end up at some um, political ally march mm-hmm, on the west side a yeah. town or she found herself marching in a crowd um with a bunch of supporters um and the the bud billiken day parade yeah mm-hmm. pretty popular parade here in the chicago yeah. so yeah she she had those experiences <laughs> um that connection with politics early on um Michelle was one of those people who set markers for achievement. She had a plan. She worked her plan. So early in her senior year, when she um, went to, she was set up to see her um, school counselor. And she was full of pride because she was on track to graduate in the top 10% of her class. Um, She was elected student treasurer for the senior class. She made the non uh, National Honor Society. She all the personal doubts that she had, she had almost completely erased them from the you know the nervousness of the ninth grader now to this accomplished and and success in her mind um, for a senior. So she was ready, and she announced to the counselor her interest to join her brother at Princeton. And the counselor said, "I'm not sure that <laughs> you're a Princeton material." 
Early in my senior year at Whitney Young, I went for an obligatory first appointment with the school college counselor to whom I'd been assigned. I can't tell you much about the counselor because I deliberately and almost instantly blotted this experience out. I don't remember her age or race or how she happened to look at me that day when I turned up in her office doorway, full of pride at the fact that I was on track to graduate in the top 10% of my class at Whitney Young that I'd been elected treasurer of the senior class, made the National Honor Society, and managed to vanquish pretty much every doubt I'd arrived with as a nervous ninth grader. I don't remember whether she inspected my transcript before or after I announced my interest in joining my brother at Princeton the following fall. It's possible, in fact, that during our short meeting, the college counselor said things to me that might have been positive and helpful, but I recall none of it. Because rightly or wrongly, I got stuck on one single sentence the woman uttered. I'm not sure, she said, giving me a perfunctory, patronizing smile, that you're Princeton material. Her judgment was as swift as it was dismissive probably based on a quick glance calculus involving my grades and test scores. It was some version, I imagine, of what this woman did all day long with practiced efficiency, telling seniors where they did and didn't belong. I'm sure she figured she was only being realistic. I doubt that she gave our conversation another thought. But as I've said, failure is a feeling long before it's an actual result. And for me, it felt like that's exactly what she was planting, a suggestion of failure long before I'd even tried to succeed. She was telling me to lower my sights, which was the absolute reverse of every last thing my parents had ever told me. Had I decided to believe her, her pronouncement would have toppled my confidence all over again, reviving the old thrum of not enough, not enough. But three years of keeping up with the ambitious kids at Whitney Young had taught me that I was something more. I wasn't gonna let one person's opinion dislodge everything I thought I knew about myself. Instead, I switched my method without changing my goal. I would apply to Princeton and a scattershot selection of other schools, but without any more input from the college counselor. So as was mentioned, she did not dwell on those words because her parents had instilled so much confidence in her. So Michelle sought guidance from somebody that actually knew her, which is huge. She then stepped aside and was like, okay, you don't really know me, so let me just get with somebody I know. So she found um, the assistant principal, who was also her neighbor, and I think she babysat for them, and she used him. He agreed to write a reference for her. Yeah, her recommendation letter, and she said, At this point in my life, she was learning to focus and have faith in her own story. So her college essay, she spoke about her father. Um, Now, I don't talk much about her father, but her father um, um, has MS. Um, And her family's lack of experience with higher education. She talked about that. And she owned up to the fact that the idea of even going to Princeton, Princeton was a reach. So. And even still, she was accepted into Princeton. And she started Princeton in 1981. Her father drove her and her then boyfriend. He came along. David. Oh, (laughs) David. If you out there, write to us. We know you're probably doing well, but just let us know. We worry about you. Yeah, for real. They had professed love for one another. But Michelle was like, that was in the context of being on my you know, at home, I mean, and going to dates so to Red real? Lobster. So real? That's Look, this was cute in Chicago, but I go to Princeton now. <laughs> and, you know, I can't be moving forward if I'm still clinging to the past, which is you. Yes. But yeah. I'm just going to ghost you. Right. Because I'm a good girl. <laughs> <laughs> 
she's like, my world is getting bigger. I, I mean, yeah, I did love you there, but uh, okay. See you later. So although David probably wanted to keep that relationship going with Michelle, Michelle had to move on, y'all. Probably. Years <laughs> later, he is talking to her dad for life advice. He is like an ingrained member of this family. <laughs> so at Princeton, Michelle quickly realized that she was at a predominantly white and male school. She was essentially an other Students arrived and stretched limos um, to accommodate their belongings, Other, some in more than one stretched limo. And this was the first time she was in a predominantly white community in Chicago. She had been in um, pretty diverse communities and then probably more black than other. And at Princeton, the only thing she needed to worry about was about being vigilant about her studies. The school was designed to accommodate their well-being. So she just needed to learn and just do schooling. And so she quickly learned that this is the lifestyle these people that she go to school with, this, they used to that. They used to having, yeah, just go out and learn. You don't have to worry about anything else. And that makes a difference in people's life, right? If you don't have the baggage mm-hmm. of worrying about this or that, but that is what she was um Princeton offered her that opportunity. One of her, or at least to see how it was, because she did have things to worry about, like bills. True, true. Because Princeton ain't free. Right, right. Yeah. One of her um, school roommates uh, moved out midway through freshman year, and she later learned that her mother had been horrified that her daughter was um, uh, set to room with a black student. I'm so sorry. Just real quick. Years later, I guess this girl and her family approached the media to say, hey, I actually shared a dorm with Michelle for a few days. But because my grandfather was a sheriff that used to run out black people out of town and because my family is like, we're racist. okay? we were shocked to know that a black girl was in my room. And so I moved out. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) I mean, why? Why would you do that? Why are you? Michelle is like, I barely remember you. And yeah, you know what? I do now remember that you moved out. Okay, I didn't know why you moved out and I didn't care because I had a life. While you were thinking about me, I was thinking about like a lot of other stuff. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? That's weird. Why did you approach the media with this story? Michelle didn't seem to care, but I am bothered by it. Yeah. To this day. (laughs) What you just find out about it two days ago? (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know why you had to come forward with with this. What is that? Yeah. It it was crazy. It was it was it was pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. So. um, So Michelle participated in a work study program. and it turned out to be a good one. She met this uh, assistant director of the Third World Center or the TWC. And so this center, well, this person was the assistant director of that um, venue. And she kind of hit it off with this assistant director. Eventually, she would um, look after her young son and then several other children um, of the faculty members. Michelle really loved children. Um, while Michelle was at Princeton, she actually started dating this guy. And I think she dated a couple of people, but this is one um, that she spoke about. And he was planning to go to med school, but instead of going to med school, he decided to veer off and be a sports mascot. Michelle was like... Listen, Michelle, <laughs> you, and she recognizes she judged harshly. Mm-hmm. This boy wanted to take a year break after college to be a 
sports mascot. Yes. Like a big, like a sports mascot. <laughs> what it For is. For a year. Uh-huh. She was like, no. Nope. She was like, oh, this relationship over. Over, over. <laughs> it's like, that's not what I'm working for, okay? I can't believe you could get off track like that. That's right. She had a list, a plan for her life and everyone involved in it, mm-hmm. relationship-wise. And if you didn't fit into that list, you was out. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. Dang, Michelle. <laughs> One year, though? Yeah. So that you can't see him... Uh, twerk and do flips nope 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 i got goals i got goals move out orange bull okay (laughs) she said he came to visit her in chicago one time and it was just so he could they went mascot suit shopping (laughs) and she was disconnected from the whole process she was that that's enough this is too much so Michelle finished Princeton, went on to get her law degree at Harvard Law. She worked for Sit. Oh, okay. She worked for Sidley and Austin, a large law firm in Chicago. Do you know them? Mm-hmm. Yep. And Michelle stayed the course. She hit all the marks and she did all the things that successful people do. Um, but she also realizes in here that she doesn't really enjoy being a, a lawyer. That's not what she likes. She felt like it wasn't clock hours. Yeah, clock hours. She said the work was boring, and it wasn't satisfying. Even though she felt this way, she though she continued to strive to hit the marks. And for law firms, she was striving for partnership. So while working at Sidley, she would become mentor to a hotshot law student from Harvard that um, the partners were excited to have. They wanted to really make sure that he came back to their firm. This man is Barack Obama. Michelle at the time was living back with her family and um, her aunt Robbie. Well, not really. Right. Cause Robbie, aunt Robbie had died and her parents moved downstairs. So she took the whole upstairs. Yeah. Those are the words I was about to say. So yeah, thanks. <laughs> That's quite all right. Okay. <laughs> so Michelle was focused on her goal of partnership. So she wasn't really dating. She was just working. She had goals and she was checking stuff off her list and she was going to achieve them. So, Working and working and her mentor duties was what she was focused on. And so she admired Barack for because he had this self-assuredness about himself. She said he came in in a suit and he looked like he'd never worn a suit before. Is that what she said? Late. Yeah. <laughs> Not he only was late. he late, but his dress was he like, uh, OK. Yeah, she made several digs about him, to be sure. <laughs> she, she was not impressed. Not at all. And she certainly wasn't interested in dating him. Plus, he smoked. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, that was like oh, the no. furthest thing from her mind. She was trying to push him off on her friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, But they did hit it off. They became friends. He would come into her office. They chatted up. Um, she was so... Uh, she was convinced that she could introduce him to one of her friends. And so one day she did and took him out on a little happy hour, but that didn't work out. Her friends was like, eh, I mean, he's a little bit of an intellectual. I'm not interested. So that and didn't work out. he was like, do you know what that girl asked me? <laughs> she asked me if I wanted to go riding <laughs> with horses. <laughs> don't, don't, take me, don't take me to no more of uh, happy hours. I'm good. Yeah. So the next time. I'm just going to read a book in the closet. <laughs> That's my idea of fun. Hi, my name is Barack Obama. I read books. I read seven books at one time (laughs) in the dark. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, that didn't happen again. She didn't take him to no more happy hour. She left him at the office. So eventually, Barack suggested they go out. 
Michelle was like ignoring the chemistry or the growing chemistry, Barack, but Barack wasn't. And their, their, um, their kind of friendship and relationship began. And when Barack went back to finish law school, they continued dating. Um, and meanwhile, Michelle continued to focus on her career goals. She had joined the firm's recruiting team. So this allowed her to push for more, um, push the firm to consider recruiting more than just the top tier schools. That's what a lot of firms do. They focus on those top tier schools. And so if you were, um, um, so the other schools are not looked at at all in some, for some uh, law firms, but yeah. So she wanted to encourage Sidley to look at other state schools as well as historically black colleges so you could open the door for more diversity. So she enjoyed this aspect. Based on merit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, not a handout. So she was yeah. like, uh, she made people really think, okay, so they did get a B. What does that mean? I mean, does that mean they're not qualified to do this job? Um Oh, also, were they working two jobs while they got this beat? Exactly. She looked at the whole big picture instead of just making a decision just because they came from the t- the school that you went to. And then um, as part of the recruiting team, she got to travel a lot. So she would visit Harvard for on-campus interviews and she could see and spend time with Barack. So that kept their relationship. Mm-hmm. Part three, life changes. Michelle's friend and college roommate died of cancer. And this made Michelle really evaluate her life uh, as she started to keep a journal. She then told her mom that she wasn't fulfilled. Her friend did what she felt was good. I mean, she took classes in college because they were fun, not because she had to. It was part of a requirement. She enjoyed life. And her friend was 26. So Michelle just didn't see this as fair. Her when her mom when she told her mom that she wasn't fulfilled, her mom told her, make the money first and worry about your happiness later. Her father. I mean, not like in a mean way. She just had her mom had made sacrifices all her life for her family. And then you have this girl you've done everything for who has all the opportunities in the world laid out in front of her sitting next to you in a car talking about she not fulfilled. She said, girl, you better make that money and worry about fulfillment later. Yeah. And, and Michelle <laughs> um, actually spoke about the um, what that probably sounded like and um, felt like to her mother to hear her say those things. So, um, yeah. True. So her father's health um, was continued to deteriorate. And I mentioned earlier that her father had MS, but it was developing course it's a progressive disease and the family tried to get him to seek medical attention but he would refuse and say that he was all right eventually he had to be taken to uh, the doctor by ambulance ambulance for something else that may not even right been related to ms but just because he didn't go to doctors right like so many of our family members right mm-hmm. yeah it got to a bad point yeah and some days later he um died of a heart attack so she's lost a really good friend She's lost her dad. He was 55 years old. Michelle was now convinced that life was too short and not to be wasted. So she felt she had more that Michelle felt she had more to offer the world um, and she needed it was time to make her move. So she started making connections to find out what kind of um, things she could do outside of the legal field. She really was tired of working in the legal field. She met um, a man named Art Sussman, 
who was in-house legal counsel for the University of Chicago. And she learned that her mom had actually worked for him as a secretary when she was a sophomore in high school. Art introduced um, Michelle to Susan Schur. And Susan was a practicing um, lawyer in the city, in city governor in city government, but had escaped big law just like Michelle. And so she could really see herself. Um, Michelle could really see herself in, in Susan. Susan then introduced her to Valerie Jarrett, who was the newly appointed deputy chief of staff for, to the Chicago Merit mayor. Um, Valerie Jarrett offered Michelle a job as assistant to Mayor Daly. Uh, so this new job that she would take is for the city. Um, so it's definitely less pay. She said it was half her pay at Sidley. So it was something that she really had to think about. Um, and she didn't hold the city in high regard. She had little faith in politics and she was ready, but she was ready for a change. So Michelle accepted the job. She didn't hold the um, city politics in high regard. Right. She loved Chicago. Right. But yeah, right. Not politics. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not politics. So Michelle mentions that she did not pass her um, first bar. try at the Illinois bar exam. You know why? Because her brother was getting married and she was like, you know what? I'm sick of studying. I'm going to be a bridesmaid and I'm going to really be a bridesmaid. And, you know, osmosis again. I'll study for the bar <laughs> with these audio books. Books on tape. <laughs> I failed. <laughs> I never failed at anything. Yeah. So she was That was shocked. good for her. Yeah. She was literally She needed shocked. to fail something. She was making me tired. <laughs> I've been tired of Michelle since kindergarten when she spelled white twice. <laughs> Michelle. We get it. You smart. Uh-huh. My goodness. She Where is the chocolate milk? has goals. Okay. She has goals. So Michelle was yeah, a planner. She, she said she overprepared for things. So when Barack finished law school and he didn't study as much as she did, she was like, maybe I should say something to him. But so they celebrated Barack completing the exam with dinner downtown. Um, they always ordered every course when they went out. They had martinis, appetizers, wine with dinner. And then after dinner, Barack raised the subject of marriage. He reached for her hand and he was like, you know, I just don't see the point. I mean, we picked a nice wine to go with our entrees. We talked idly, contentedly, maybe a little sappily. As we were reaching the end of the meal, Barack smiled at me and raised the subject of marriage. He reached for my hand and said that as much as he loved me with his whole being, he still didn't really see the point. Instantly, I felt the blood rise in my cheeks. It was like pushing a button in me. The kind of big blinking red button you might find in some sort of nuclear facility surrounded by warning signs and evacuation maps. Really? We were going to do this now? In fact, we were. We'd had the hypothetical marriage discussion plenty of times already and nothing much ever changed. I was a traditionalist and Barack was not. It seemed clear that neither one of us could be swayed, but still, this didn't stop us, two lawyers after all, from taking up the topic with hot gusto. Surrounded by men in sport coats and women in nice dresses enjoying their fancy meals, I did what I could to keep my voice calm. If we're committed, I said as evenly as I could muster, why wouldn't we formalize that commitment? What part of your dignity would be sacrificed by that? From here, we traversed all the familiar loops of the old argument. Did marriage matter? Why did it matter? What was wrong with him? What was wrong with me? 
What kind of future did we have if we couldn't sort this out? We weren't fighting, but we were quarreling and doing it attorney style. We punched and counterpunched, dissected and cross-examined, though it was clearly I who was more inflamed. It was I who was doing most of the talking. Eventually, our waiter came around holding a dessert plate covered by a silver lid. He slid it in front of me and lifted the cover. I was almost too miffed to even look down, but when I did, I saw a dark velvet box where the chocolate cake was supposed to be. Inside it was a diamond ring. Barack looked at me playfully. He baited me. It had all been a ruse. It took me a second to dismantle my anger and slide into joyful shock. He'd riled me up because this was the very last time he would invoke his inane marriage argument ever again, as long as we both should live. The case was closed. He dropped to one knee then, and with an emotional hitch in his voice, asked sincerely if I'd please do him the honor of marrying him. Later, I'd learned that he'd already gone to my mother and my brother to ask for their approval ahead of time. When I said yes, it seemed that every person in the whole restaurant started to clap. For a full minute or two, I stared dumbfounded at the ring on my finger. I looked at Barack to confirm that this was all real. He was smiling. He'd completely surprised me. In a way, we'd both won. Well, he said lightly, that should shut you up. They married in October of 1992. <laughs> they did. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so at, Plot twist. Yeah. <laughs> at the time, um, I think, I don't know how long it was, but while they were engaged and even before they were engaged, Barack was working on writing a book. He was writing a book, you know. But by the yeah. time they returned from their honeymoon, Barack had missed the book deadline and the publisher was like, I'm going to need that $40,000 back. Give me my money back. (laughs) Give it back. And Brock was like, what? I just got back from surfing. Can you all just calm down? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So his mom had an idea. She was like, look, son, go to a quiet place. Finish your book out. It'll be great. But this quiet place is in Bali. Okay. This quiet place is Indonesia. (laughs) Go ahead. And his mom had already rented a cabin for him to stay. This man is married. Whole married life. Whole married life. So six weeks into their marriage, he goes away for five weeks to finish writing her book, his book. Yeah. Michelle is a trooper. Yeah. (laughs) She support her man. So Michelle, um, Grew up watching Mary Tyler Moore, you know. Are you familiar with Mary Tyler Moore? No, but I do know um, Candace's show. Oh, um, something. Oh, Ricky Lake. No. Listen, I get it. A working mom show. It's not a working mom show. Mary Tyler Moore. No, she was an independent professional woman. And what Michelle liked about her is that she didn't she didn't get um, bossed around and she wasn't fixated on finding a husband. So Michelle wanted that life of Mary Tyler Moore because she was a career professional doing her thing. She was I-N-D-E-P-E-N-D-E-N-T. Did I spell it right? Anyway, that's what it was. I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> Michelle wanted that life. You know, she wanted to be the career woman and she was having it. She wanted everything. So they moved. So this guy came along mm-hmm. in his loose fit clothes and his uh, <laughs> CPT time. <laughs> yeah. Doing what he do. But this ain't about him. Right. It's about Michelle. Okay. 
That's right. Mm -hmm. So they moved out of the home um, that Michelle had, the apartment that she was living in above her parents. um, And they... The place she grew up in. Yeah, purchased a condo in Hyde Park. And Michelle switched jobs again. This time she worked for a nonprofit that gave her a leadership role. She was the executive director of a brand new Chicago chapter of an um, organization called Political Allies. Part four, (laughs) into politics. When Brock asked Michelle if he should run for the state Senate seat in 1995, she didn't think it was a good idea. She didn't appreciate politicians. She wasn't excited about being the wife of the politician. And as I mentioned earlier, city politics, you know, she didn't have any faith in them. So she certainly don't have them at a state level. So but she had her friendship with Santita, as I mentioned earlier. This is Jesse Jackson's daughter. And so she knew what that life looked like for Santita and she did not want that for herself and that was just as the a teenager but Michelle thought of all the support that Barack had given her through the job switches and he never doubted her and so she didn't want to doubt his capabilities and she didn't want to interfere with his optimism so she gave her approval and Barack was elected to the Illinois Senate in November of 1996. Michelle soon after transitioned to a new position as well Art Sussman, the lawyer from um, University of Chicago that her mother used to work for, told her there was a newly created position. She would be she could be the associate dean to focus on community relations. And by this time, she was 32 and she really wanted to start a family. They both wanted to start a family, but it wasn't happening. And although nothing was physically wrong with them that prevented them from um, starting a family, they did find that they needed some assistance. So, um, uh, in fact, they began in vitro. Yeah. In fact, at one point, Michelle did get pregnant, but she miscarried shortly thereafter. And so they did try in vitro and Michelle became pregnant. And their um, first daughter, Malia, was born on July 4th, 1998. And Barack was back and forth to Springfield. Michelle was a mother. She was a wife. She was a career woman. She had her Mary Tyler Moore on. Okay, she was doing the (laughs) Okay, that's what she was doing. Um, She had seen it done before by um, other successful women. Uh, Valerie Jarrett was doing it. Susan Scher. These are people that she had met with when she was trying to get out of the legal field and into some other career. And she looked up to these women and she she knew it could be done. And then she also wanted to. um, She wanted to strike this perfect balance between Mary Tyler Moore and her mother, because she also wanted that. Family. Family. Like life. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So after she had Malia, she found a babysitter and went back to work. And, but she went back part time. And meanwhile, Barack was becoming more popular. Um, he had been reelected to a four year term in the Senate. And he was starting to think about running for U.S. Congress. Uh, about three years later, though, um, after another round of IVF, they had another daughter. Sasha was born. And Michelle debated going back to work. She was like, this might be the perfect time to stay home. I think I could stay home. She enjoyed mm-hmm. her time with her daughters. Her um, Barack schedule was irregular. It was just like, this is great. I could stay home. But another opportunity presented itself. And Michelle just couldn't pass it up. She would now be the director of community affairs at Chicago, at the University of Chicago Medical Center. 
Um, she would work full time. She found that part time work really didn't work for her. That um, that was actually as much as people say you want to work part time. It was really a drag on all her life. You know, it just mm-hmm. you seem like you're doing more. You're always behind. Mm-hmm. And she's a planner. Yeah. So, yeah, working a full time schedule part time means you're always trying to catch mm-hmm. up. And it was stressing her out. Yeah. But this opportunity to work full time offered her a competitive salary. And this would allow her to better afford child care and housekeeping help so she could spend time with her children and not be worried about click cleaning and all the other stuff. Um, yeah, when she was work. at home, she was with them. Mm-hmm. As Barack's schedule became more challenging and the children were older, Michelle saw a need for couples therapy. She was like, he is getting on my nerves. He ain't never home. Mm-hmm. But I say I dinner. Hate politics. And guess what he doing? Politics. Yes, he politicking and I don't like it. So if he okay. changed and fixed that, then we'll be perfect. <laughs> right. <laughs> and what I need is perfection. That's right. And so Michelle <laughs> thought therapy was the answer. She thought she could gripe in therapy and the therapist would be like, yep, you right. You right. We're going to fix him. But instead, Michelle learned some new things, some ways that helped her to be happy without demanding change from Barack. And that made a huge difference in her life Um, because therapy highlighted her unrealistic expectations of him and her happiness should not have to come from him. Stop doing anything, you know. One thing I really liked that she um, got one gym she picked up through therapy. (laughs) So when Barack would call and be like, I'm five minutes away, he might not come home for two and a half hours. Wow. (laughs) Because five minutes to him might be making his way out the door. Yeah. But he he picks up different meetings. He completes different tasks. In his mind, he's on his way home. Yeah. The girls and his wife would wait for him. Yep. So the girls would be tired when he got home. The food would be cold. Everyone would be miserable and they'd all go to bed frustrated. Yeah. So instead, she, instead of depending on him, she would have a set time every day where everyone would eat. So if, if dinner is at seven, if you make it home by seven, you make dip, you make it to dinner. If you don't, you don't. Just let us know. Right. This is what we're doing every day. And that worked for everyone. Right. Yeah. So the owners don't make this one person. Don't put your make your happiness contingent. On the actions of one person. Exactly. That's your husband. Exactly. So she was able to set up these boundaries and it helped her function better. Um, Barack then wins a seat with the uh, United States Senate and is invited to give the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention. And after this speech, the question lingered everywhere he went. Barack could be the next president. Are you are you going to run for president? Are you are you? Oh, is it? Oh, I have to talk about yeah. Michelle. It depends yeah. on what Michelle says. Uh, yeah. you guys. Are you sure? I hate when husbands do this. <laughs> by the way, why? <laughs> you already know what you're gonna do. Also, don't put it on me. You, what the message you're putting out there is, I'll run if Michelle lets me. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Trash. Well, that's what he, I hate politics for the hundredth time. You know I <laughs> want you to run. You don't care. <laughs> so when he finally spoke to michelle about it as against it as she was she said yes because she didn't think a black man could win in america yeah go ahead run baby Mm -hmm. you want to run barack obama (laughs) you go ahead do that i'm proud of you yeah that's what she said though. that's cute for you (laughs) so barack announced his run for presidency on a cold day in springfield february 20 2007 michelle was going to be supportive and support she did michelle hit the trail to uh, campaign for her husband with no instructions she made her first solo stop 
at a home in Des Moines, Iowa. And as she looked around the house, she realized that these Iowans, Iowans, Iowans were just like her family. She so she could give a very sincere presentation about why she felt Barack could be there, um, be their president. And she didn't sugarcoat it as she didn't sugarcoat how she felt about politics. So she's going all the way around Iowa having these small town conversations. But eventually she got to speak on the bigger scale. And that same um, speech that she would give didn't really translate on a big stage. So people began to attack her. Um, This. Yeah, she went to Wisconsin and said, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country. She said that in Wisconsin. Yeah. So it didn't go well. Mm -mm, Not at all. She said a lot of other stuff, too. But, you know, that's all they heard. That's all they heard. (laughs) Um, And that's what they kept playing on a loop. mm -hmm. (laughs) And this, you know, Michelle is uh, wants people's approval. She she likes to see that she's doing well. And the negative attacks really um, defeated her. So she was like, look, if I'm doing more harm than good, I'm glad to sit out. But Barack was like, but your support is great. So keep going. But eventually they had to sit her down and they could have did this before, but they sat her down. Um, <laughs> Barack's campaign people. Years into campaign and it felt yeah. like they had an intervention like, hey, girl, you talk too much. Mm-hmm. Also, you look angry. When you talk, you look <laughs> angry. She like, but I'll be smiling. That'd be me. And I don't understand what people say, but I'm happy. No, you Truthfully, sound angry. It's just the way some people look when they're passionate about what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And it's translated as anger for some people and not for others. Right. OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at some point in the campaign, <laughs> Michelle was called the closer because she helped people make up their minds. Barack won his first he did. bid in 2008 <laughs> for presidency. That's crazy. Yeah. Part five, the first lady. Now this is going to be short. Mrs. Michelle Obama. Okay. <laughs> After an inauguration, they went um, to 10 events, you know, celebrating. They was hidden, happening all over the place. But this was exhausting. I did learn a couple of things, though. It sounds like they live in the White House for free, but they got to pay for all the food they eat. Did you get that? <laughs> it sounds like they got to pay for everything. But the house. It sounds very expensive yes, okay, to be president. You got high-end mm-hmm. chefs cooking for you. And, and yeah. you paying for the food that they creating. I mean, you get a salary. but. Yeah, this is coming out of your personal pocket. Mm -hmm. It ain't free. It ain't free free. Nah, it ain't. Yeah, and the chefs want to show off. Mm -hmm. So they're making stuff for Obama and he's like, oh, that's good. Now you see how skinny he is. (laughs) This man, I just don't see him as having a passion for food. (laughs) So he was like, you know, oh, this is good. Okay, thanks. And they would be like, oh, you hear that? The president loves it. Let's keep flying this in (laughs) from this one town in Russia. It's going to be $2 million every week, but the president likes it. And then Michelle will look at the bill and be like, "Uh uh-uh, he don't like it that much. Everybody (laughs) eating hot dogs today. (laughs) But vegan hot dogs, because you know I'm all about healthy food. Right, exactly. She was not trying to hear that. So Michelle also convinced her mom to join her and help other children while, you know, they make this transition. But her mom was like, eh. I love her mom. Do you remember her mom? Have you ever seen her mom from inauguration night? She looks unimpressed. Unimpressed. <laughs> I love Do you it. hear me? I love this it. is like I so so 
<laughs> if staying grounded was a woman. Yeah. So she talks about um, how after Barack became president, she all of a sudden had all these extra cousins. I thought that was so funny. I was like, even in a presidential role? Hey, hey, Michelle, she didn't have to put me on blast like that. Hey, Michelle, I don't know if you remember me, but we um we third cousins. Anyway, girl, listen, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I need $10 for a <laughs> guess, and I know you got it. Right. And come speak at this um graduation party while you're at it. Middle school. Yeah, my play cousin um getting married. Can you sing? <laughs> exactly. That is what it was like. She was like, who are these people? I don't know them. And she's really close <laughs> with her family. So as we know, Michelle mm-hmm. was... So she didn't know you. She really didn't. Mm-hmm. Michelle was often attacked in the media. Uh, they talked about her for wearing a cardigan to see the queen. She wore a sleeveless... Um, and you know she got them arms though girl it's fine um she wore sleeveless she, she just has healthy arms they look strong yeah what did i say they don't look like weight no not arms. muscular no yeah no they just look strong yes sis look good mm-hmm. but michelle as she's telling the story i don't notice that she apologizes for anything even she don't even explain it she just stated as it was i was like okay michelle i think she was more disappointed in those who attacked her body mm-hmm. than like offended yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> even like the size of her hips now i'm gonna tell you there's a photo of her and barack in essence magazine yep. and i remember seeing that photo and be like i didn't know you was working with all that <laughs> a lot of people Michelle. said that a lot of people said that i see why folks was mad <laughs> and uncomfortable <laughs> you got all of that put on sis Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Look at that wagon you dragging. Okay, Michelle, <laughs> I see you, girl. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's part of her. You know, she pushes past the negative, and she tries to set up this um, project to focus on. I don't. Um, what is it called when they set up their agenda? Whatever it is that they do. Yeah, she's trying to do her part. She sees yeah. it as mm-hmm. in. Um, curing or decreasing the numbers of childhood obesity yeah and so she's she um the job they say. of floaters doesn't come with a job description there's no list of duties or anything associated with it you just like get out there but if you sat on the side and stayed at home and watched your kids they would sure be talking about you so yeah, yeah as first lady yep. so she mm-hmm. stood up she knew she already had a strong community um interest you know helping the community um diversity was important to her so she it was easy for her to jump into things like that and a couple years or maybe a year or two earlier malia had been diagnosed as with a hot not diagnosed the doctor said malia had a high bmi and because they were eating out a lot um, michelle could understand this so they immediately make changes so she saw the importance of having this garden so the garden was a big thing so she had a garden built made outside the White House. And while initially there was um, pushback, people eventually loved that garden. Um, She also created uh, Let's, I think it's called Let's Go, where they encouraged, Let's Move, move, you're right. Um, Let's Move encouraged people, children to be active at least one hour a day. I think that's what it was. Anyway, so she created, she had these agendas for herself that she was pushing. Um, She tried to change food how what types of food is served in the school system because she knew when she was going up against the 
um, say Coca-Cola um, or the corn. She That's a big fight. But instead, she chose to work with these to try to create. Yeah, not Coca-Cola, but like big corn. Yeah. That's huge yeah. because the corn syrup is in everything. Yeah. So if you're coming against corn syrup, which will kill you, um, you're going to have to be ready to fight because mm-hmm. they have the money to lobby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't want to do that. She instead devised a plan to work with these people to make changes. Um, she, Michelle created, she created a lot of programs. She wanted to help kids and encourage them. She opened the White House um, to more people and opportunities. Like she had a, um, what is it called? An artist show, a spoken word event. Mm-hmm. At, the first in the White yeah, House. Yeah, the first in the White House. And um, Lin-Manuel was able to perform there. His Something he was working yeah, on. Yeah, something he was working on there. So she felt, I think she feels really proud of the work that she did ultimately. As we know, he had two terms. And um, and so she ultimately just talks about the things that she accomplishes during this time. She mentions the time period where um, early on when they were in his first term, where they took a helicopter and went to New York to see a play and all the work and then all the backlash they got after after that. And so um, just all the negative um, talk that they got, she spoke about that a lot. And it was interesting hearing it from, you know, her point of view versus what we had heard on the media. So that was um, really interesting to hear. So um, she talks about times when she would leave the White House and go to stores and just attempt to be unnoticed. She kind of changed the way that uh what the secret service works with her children. Hopefully that changed for um, long-term because one time her daughter wanted to go somewhere with other students to get ice cream, yes, ice cream. Mm-hmm. And she had to wait an hour for some secret service guy to come get her. She was like, no, that don't even make sense. And everyone had yeah. to wait an hour. If she had, if Sasha had to wait. An yeah. Hour. And that doesn't make sense at all. So she worked to change that process. They should be able to move like children move. They move on the spur. So um, one big thing is Michelle maintained her circle of friends. Um, she even found new ones in um, D.C. She learned how to use the media to her benefit. She used it to highlight people um, that she felt like needed to be noticed. Like one time she went to work on a home um, in, a, in a neighborhood that was being rebuilt, not rebuilt or modified because the man was a veteran. And. Yeah, the man was a veteran, so the media then came and they're taking pictures and this gave them an opportunity to learn more about him and talk about the um, missions and concerns that um, this organization that she was working for has. So she used the the media to her benefit. Um, She also spoke about the violence of Sandy Hook and how she just could not bring herself to uh, go to that with Barack. Um, When he went immediately after it happened, she couldn't go because it was, um, it was just hard to see those people mourning for children. And and she felt like she couldn't offer anything and that her hug, the hug that she gives just wasn't enough. So what, one interesting thing about Sandy Hook is that was one of the few times she was summoned to the White House. So during their oh, working day, right. she gave him his space mm-hmm. and he called for her, <clears throat> which was rare. Mm-hmm. I think this was like the first time yeah. where he just wanted it to be them too, mm-hmm. um, because he was so overcome by emotion. That was a tough day. Yeah. Um, that was a tough time for for everyone. Yeah. So that's the story of Michelle, you guys. Um, as she's ending, um, 
her time as Flotus, Michelle begins to recognize that she needs to find herself all over again. She's got to start this new phase in her life. And this is just the beginning again. She's still becoming. Yeah, she's still becoming. So that's it, folks. Let's take a quick break. at a new beginning in a new phase of life for the first time in many years I'm unhooked from any obligation as a political spouse unencumbered by other people's expectations I have two nearly grown daughters who need me less than they once did I have a husband who no longer carries the weight of the nation on his shoulders the responsibilities I felt to Sasha and Malia to Barack to my career and my country have shifted in ways that allow me to think differently about what comes next. I've had more time to reflect, to simply be myself. At 54, I am still in progress, and I hope that I always will be. For me, becoming isn't about arriving somewhere or achieving a certain aim. I see it instead as forward motion, a means of evolving, a way to reach continuously toward a better self. The journey doesn't end. I became a mother, but I still have a lot to learn from and give to my children. I became a wife, but I continue to adapt to and be humbled by what it means to truly love and make a life with another person. I have become, by certain measures, a person of power, and yet there are moments still when I feel insecure and unheard. It's all a process, steps along a path. Becoming requires equal parts patient and rigor. Becoming is never giving up on the idea that there's more growing to be done. And Kari, we're back. Hey. That was a little long, wasn't it? That was a little long, wasn't it? No. Okay. <laughs> so I need to know your thoughts. What's your final verdict? Would you recommend this book? This book called me lazy and I appreciated it because while my goals do not in any way align with Michelle's, I do have goals. And just as she was determined to reach her goals, I need to be determined to reach the goals I have because life is not something that necessarily lasts and lasts and lasts. Anything can happen. I need to take advantage of the time I have. And that was a huge lesson I took away from becoming. I thought it was written well, um, I loved how she took us from the beginning to the current um, time in her life. And I thought her her story was like even their love story. I, I enjoyed it because it reminded me how a real love story. Um, and I'm assuming that what she's sharing here is indeed fact and is giving us a good overview of their relationship. It's better than anything that fiction could give you. Um even the way her mom championed her and her dad, the way she had that mm-hmm. solid foundation at home and how that boosted her, boost, boosted her for the rest of her life, bolstered her. Okay. Um, how that gave her a step, a edge um, that she took advantage of. I love that. I, lo- I loved this story. So no matter what side you are on politically or if you're not political at all, I thought this um, book was inspiring. I was inspired and I would recommend it. <laughs> 
What about you? Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Would you recommend it? I did. I enjoyed it immensely. There are a couple of times in here where I feel like I was like, oh, it's really sad. Like a little tear mm-hmm. came out. I was on the side there. Like but, when she's um, talking about her father or? Oh, it's just a lot of times. Um, her when her friend died. Yeah, and she went outside, and everyone's still living. Her friend is dead, but somehow the world keeps going on. I remember having those thoughts when important people have passed in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and her dad, the, you know, they wanted to help her dad so much, but he he apparently didn't trust doctors, and he was okay. He would just tell them. It was okay. So I really loved her story. It was very deep. It was very personal. And I'd be like, is Michelle my friend? Because I was thinking <laughs> she was my friend as I was reading it. So I, I really loved her story. I would definitely read it again. I would definitely recommend it. Because um, I would say it's not very political. It's truly a story about her life. Mm-hmm. I love, too, how she didn't blame uh, racial injustice for everything in the world. She took as much responsibility and control as she possibly could for yeah. her outcome, for her future, without ignoring um, the inequalities in, in this world. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that, too. All right. Well, that was Becoming by Michelle Obama. Join us next week for. Do you know? The sellout. The sellout. I don't know anything about this book. I chose it. We'll see how it goes. You see how you be doing us? I know. Yeah. So I chose it because it's another comedy like book that's supposed to make you think or whatever. We'll see. All right, you guys. Well, thank you for listening to Lit Society. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the show by shopping our store where we offer our own line of luxury candles inspired by literature. Those are called Lightotes. You can shop Lightotes at L-O-V-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S. Again, that's L-O-V-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S dot com. You can also shop our sweatshirts. We have some... uh, really awesome <laughs> designs and comfy cute wear for the well-read society comfy yeah yeah they are comfy <laughs> i love them uh sweatshirts and tees and even mugs um lit society uh can also be supported with your five-star reviews you ain't even gotta spend all money you want apple go to apple podcast and leave us a five-star review let us know why you love us we love y'all too um anything else All right, well, that's that. This is episode 21. And until next time, read something.